Oscar Wilde once said, The only thing to do with good advice is to pass it on. It is never of any use to oneself. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about DMing 102, the sequel to our episode DMing 101. Now, in DMing 101, we went over 10 tips that we thought would allow you to be better DMs. And I'd like to go over those really quick just to give you a recap. The first was to remember you're here to have fun. And we actually had an episode where we talked about sort of the science behind fun and what kinds of fun exist. And that's a great jumping off point if you want to get more in depth with that. But the important thing is we're playing a game. We're trying to have fun. The second is know the rules. Of course you need to know the rules. It's pretty self-explanatory. The better you know the rules, the less time you waste looking them up. The third is make it about the player characters. Remember that you have players who are here to play a game, and if this isn't about them, then it's not going to really resonate with them in any useful way. You need to have them enjoying the experience, and the best way to do that is to make it about them. The fourth, don't forget to plan. Remember to make material, plan ahead, and be prepared. The fifth, have good time management. Remember not to waste excessive amounts of time and to know where your big wastes of time end up being and try to cut down on those. The sixth, don't be afraid to let the players be powerful. Something I always struggled with because I was afraid if they had too much treasure or if they got to be too high level that I would not be able to stop them from beating the game and being able to overpower anything I threw at them. That's a false fear. The seventh is be sure to talk to your players. Be sure to speak with them and let them know what your expectations are as well as finding out what their expectations are. The eighth, keep good notes. There's nothing worse than accidentally retconning your own game. Nine, K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid. And number 10, of course, follow Wheaton's Law. Don't be a dick. All of those were introductory rules for the new DM, for the DM who was about to start their first game. This episode is going to be for the DMs who have played a few sessions and really want to know how to refine their game. So this time, instead of ten rules, we have just five. But we feel that these really need a little bit more of an examination. The first rule we have is know your venue. For most of us, that means knowing your own home. DMs tend to run games in their own home. It's kind of the classic expectation that with the burden of DMing also comes the privilege of being able to run at your own home and the responsibilities that entails. The big thing is when you're playing in your own home, you have full control of the space. You've got the options to change around how things are arranged and to choose the space in your home that is best for your game. You need to be aware of some things. The first and most important one is to make sure the space is clean and tidy. It doesn't need to be absolutely immaculate, but it absolutely should not be filthy, and it definitely should not be so messy that it's a distraction to your game. You also need to make sure that you have basic amenities. You need to have places for all the players to sit. You need to have place for all the game material to sit out. If people are going to be there for an extended period of time, like most game sessions 
conditions are. They need to have access to water. They need to know where your bathroom's at. Sometimes it might be good to provide snacks, although if you're not going to, let them know that beforehand. You need to be able to direct them to where the power outlets are, so that way they can plug in their phone or their laptop or whatever sort of electronic device they're using. But, if you don't have the luxury of playing at your own house, if you're a DM who just so happens to travel, you might be in one of your players' houses, or you might even be in a public place. If you're in one of your players' houses, the important thing is to know what kind of rules are expected of you as a house guest, and how much space you're going to have to work in. Now, obviously this is going to vary depending on where in the house you're playing, and how much options you have with that will also vary by what the arrangement of those houses are. But the big thing is to be aware of what kind of space you'll have to work in and how much you'll be able to spread out and fill that space with your materials and your various gadgets and equipment. You need to be able to know how much space you have to work with and what kind of amenities are going to be available to you, how many outlets, how far they are away, whether you're going to have a comfortable chair or if you'll be sitting on the floor, things like that. Be aware and be able to plan ahead based on that. In public venues, however, there are even more things to consider. So there are numerous places that you can play all sorts of role-playing games in public. You can be in a restaurant, you can be in a library, you can be in almost any public business, so long as they allow you to stay there for extended hours, or you might even be outside in a public park. Each of these brings its own challenges. If you're in a restaurant, for example, you might want to tell them ahead of time, hey, we're going to be here for a few hours. Could you Stick us in the back corner. We're going to make sure that we order. We're going to make sure that things are going well. But we don't want to be a distraction to your other customers. Oftentimes, if the restaurant allows you to, they will be perfectly fine putting you off in a corner and letting you sit there for a while. They'll come back, refill your drinks, go, Hey, is anyone else hungry? We have other appetizers. We have desserts. Also, if you're playing in a restaurant, you might not have as much space as you'd like. So you're really going to need to keep it packed in. You're going to want to have places to put your food as well as as your gaming material. Regardless of the public venue, the golden rule that really cannot be stressed enough is don't freak out the mundanes. Seriously, do not be that guy. Don't give gamers a bad name by creating distractions or unpleasant spaces for other people. Be courteous, be pleasant, enjoy yourself, but don't overwhelm the space. Certainly don't feel the need to conquer your surroundings and intimidate other people. We're all here to have a good time and everyone else who's at this venue is also here for a good time. You need to not be the one to destroy that for anyone. If you're in a library, you need to keep it quiet. Ragnar the Barbarian can't bellow at the top of his lungs, no matter how in character it is, if you're somewhere where you have to be quiet. Also, be wary of venues that have closing times. Always be aware of how much time you have left to play. This is a part of time management, but it's a special consideration with any sort of public venue. Most parks close at dark. Most libraries close at five or six. Point being, you're not going to have the option to stay as long as you could possibly want. We were once blessed to uh, be able to play at our local donut shop. There were always people coming and going, but for the most part, there weren't a lot of people who would actually occupy the shop overnight. We basically got the run of a very large table in there, and we would play for hours and hours, and no one minded. Everyone was happy with it, but that's another important thing to be aware of. Be aware of how your venue feels about you gaming there. Even if you feel you should have the right to play your game somewhere, don't play somewhere where they're not comfortable with you playing. 
The next rule we have is prepare your space. Once you know your venue, you really have to prepare it for gaming. You can't just sit down and go, all right, guys, let's game. Well, you can, but it's really not ideal. What is ideal is if it's your home, you should be preparing the space for your game in whatever ways best suit the mood of your game. When Jeremy used to run World of Darkness games for us, we would use these small book lights as our only light sources, so we'd be playing almost exclusively in the dark. And it's a silly atmospheric thing, but it was actually a lot of fun and gave that game its own special unique feeling. Another thing is if you have the option to incorporate multimedia, videos, imagery, maps that you can throw up on a screen, things like that, this can all help with your game. Ambient sounds, smells even are an option. The wonderful program Sirenscape gives wonderful music that can be played as background music to your fantasy RPGs. And most of the basic sound packages are free. Of course, I suggest paying just a little bit more to get a few very custom sound sets. And it's great. But if you're playing at a place that's not your own home, then you have some real considerations about how to prepare. The biggest thing that we can really recommend is have a DM travel kit. So what is that? Well, it's a bag that just has all of the essentials you need to run your D&D game. Now, you might have specific things that you need to run your game that are unique to your game, but in general, there are some things that are always going to be useful in your travel kit. Our suggestion is at least one copy of the core rules for whatever game you're playing. Pathfinder, World of Darkness, D&D, Dresden Files, whatever you're playing, you should have at least one physical copy of the core rule books. This is useful to pass around the group, and if anyone needs to reference it, it's easy to flip through. We are living in a wonderful modern era where Almost every single RPG has its rules in a PDF format. And so if you have a tablet or a laptop or even your smartphone, you can put the rules directly on there. We still suggest you have a book just in case other people need it, but having the rules at your fingertips in a searchable PDF is wonderful. Likewise, as we said, if you want to use Sirenscape or something like that, you can run it off of your phone. And having everything in a nice, small, compact electronic device is really, really key. Every major publisher offers ebook versions of their games, and most minor publishers as well, which is phenomenal. It used to be that the only way you saw ebooks was in pirated material, and we don't really want to condone that sort of thing because we need to support the companies that make the games we love. The fact that these PDFs are available now, and even for some games, all the open source material is available online for free, that's phenomenal. It's a great way of having that information at your fingertips so that it's easy to reference when the time comes. Another thing that you're going to need for your travel kit is a battle mat. What we tend to like are the foldable battle mats by Game Mastery or Paizo, which tend to be dry erase, wet erase, and permanent marker safe. It's fabulous. You, you, you use permanent markers on them, you're going to need Windex or some sort of alcohol, rubbing alcohol to actually remove the permanent marker, but it 
it comes off cleanly and it never leaves lasting marks. Vinyl mats are awesome, but they're often very fragile. A lot of them can only be used with wet erase markers. Anything else will permanently damage them. I personally use a set of dungeon tiles from the company Roll for Initiative. These are wet erase, dry erase, and chalk marker safe. And they can be easily stuffed into a small messenger bag, and they lock together and let you lay out the battlefield as you need it. If you are exploring a dungeon, you can often draw the dungeon out on these tiles beforehand, and then as the players explore, you can lay out the new tiles to reveal new rooms. This is a great thing to help save with space. Once again, if you're playing in a restaurant, you're not going to have the full table. You're going to have a bit of the table plus area for your food, plus area for your dice, plus area for your character sheet. Speaking of dice, a set of physical dice is a must. Now, I know you might have a dice roller, and especially if you have to roll a lot of dice, like 8d6, 20d6, whatever, you're probably going to be defaulting to your dice roller for it. But physical dice not only give you that sense pleasure of being able to throw dice around, they make fabulous counters, especially if you need to count up or down numbers. This can be common for things like spell durations or poison effects or anything that just continually affects the game and might need to change increments. Dice are essential for this. I usually like to have at least two sets. More would be awesome, although it starts to take up a lot of space very quickly. Less and you're really kind of stretching your budget for physical objects that can be manipulated. Tokens and counters can also be useful. Having any sort of little markers to denote the enemies. I like to use different colored meeple. I have seven different colors in my travel kit, and I have six of each different meeple just to represent enemy groups. Okay, the yellow ones are druids, the red ones are barbarians, and this blue one here is, of course, Mordenkainen the wizard. And these help show the players exactly where the enemies are at without needing to have full detailed miniatures. A last essential is you need some way of recording information. Now again, you might think, well, I've got a laptop or a tablet or whatever, I can write down everything in text format on there, and that might work for you, but I like to have something I can jot quick notes on. A notepad for me is essential. Jeremy tends to prefer index cards, which are great, and I definitely don't want to disindex cards at all, but they can take up a lot of space and they can get messy if you don't have them strapped in really carefully, but they make great things for like initiative counters. I usually write down characters' names on different cards and then cycle through them. Likewise, I use monsters and write them down there and cycle through it. Also, if I need to communicate privately with one of the players, I can write a little note on an index card, slide it to the player. I can also keep track of enemy spells. I can keep track of round durations. Also, sometimes if there's a movable object in the scene, I can quickly draw it out on an index card, rip it out, and set it down on the, on the battle mat, and they can move it around. There's a number of other little things you might want to include in your DM kit, but those really aren't necessary. These are things like like foldable dice trays that fold completely flat. Those help keep your dice all in one area. You might want to keep specialized minis for the player characters. My friend Jason actually likes using paper miniatures to be able to fold down, stand up, and move around the battlefield. 
I'm also partial to having a deck of cards because you never know when you might want a deck of cards and a tarot deck because a tarot deck is a nice symbolic way to introduce some sort of chaos to your game. If you need some sort of inspiration, it's easy to draw a tarot card and say, okay, where is this going to lead me? Look, see the hermit. And then, you know, you might have some sort of kickstart to your idea or it might move you in the right direction. Just little visual aids like that. And it's nice to have a few useful things like that because you never know when they might be useful. I also like to have like custom dice that I keep around with me. I've got a set of alignment dice that just say lawful, chaotic, neutral, and good, evil, and neutral on them. And that can be neat if you just need to, like, what's this next NPC? Uh, shh, lawful evil. There we go. Boom. That's a jump off point for a character. No problem. See, things like that that can give you little bits of inspiration. It helps to have things that you can jump off of. But we'll get to that in a minute. Now, those little personalized touches are really great to have in your DM travel kit. But the key thing to personalize is actually our rule number three. Personalize the game. Even if you're running a full module from a publisher, it's really nice to personalize it to your group. Currently, I'm running the Curse of Strahd, and hopefully it's completely different than any other person's Curse of Strahd. Right. I've run Kingmaker start to finish, which is a Paizo adventure path, and I made a lot of touches in it that specifically tied into the characters' backstories for my player characters. It doesn't take a lot to make things feel personalized and important to the players. You just need to be able to tie it into material that matters within the game. Even if your players are the type to write novels, and I'll rant about that another day, but I've had players who would send me character backstories that were basically novellas. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, although, like I said, that's a rant for another day. Anyway, the point is, I don't have to integrate everything from that to make it feel important and special. You just need a few touches. Latch onto a few important points and work from there. You might surprise yourself. You might come up with some amazing stories stuff that makes your players feel more connected to the game. Likewise, even if your players don't give you anything in their backstory, even if their backstory is, I was raised by my parents, I'm from the place I was born, and I'm going to the place where I will be. That's fine, because we're playing a game, and you're going to get to see what your characters take interest in as the game progresses. If your characters constantly go to the same inn after every adventure, you know that that's their base of operations. If they then go down to the common room and regale the local drunkard with their adventures, take notice of that. Who knows? Maybe that drunkard knows a thing or two about the surrounding areas and gives a little hint to the player character's next adventure. Maybe a local assassin uses that drunkard as leverage against the player characters or applies him with drink to gain knowledge about the player characters. Or if you're late in the campaign and the player characters are having a hard time against a tough monster, suddenly in comes Svengar the Great who might have appeared to be a drunkard, but is in fact a high-level adventurer who has taken a shine to these adventurers and wants to come and help. Point being, you can follow what your players are doing in the game and notice what they take interest in. When you see them taking interest in something, that's the thing to latch onto. That's the thing to be aware of. Whatever they seem to take interest in is where you need to flesh out your game. That's where you should be focusing because they're telling you what it is they want from your game by taking these interests. 
Our fourth rule is don't be afraid to go off the rails. Now, to explain this rule, I really need to go into detail about what railroading is. There's a really common practice among newer DMs where they have a tendency to railroad the adventure. What that is, is they have an idea in their mind of what the story of the adventure is going to be. The player characters are going to go here. They're going to talk to this person. They're going to like them. They're going to take an adventure from them. They're going to go here, defeat this bad guy, get this treasure and just continue on and on and on. And if the player characters start going off to the side, the DM that's railroading will go, no, that's not what happens. Or worse, go, I don't think that that's what you should do. Or I don't think that's what your character would do. Remember that even if you're just undermining the intent of your player's actions, that's still a form of railroading. A common practice in old school RPGs for computers and consoles was the practice of adding plot boulders to the game. It'd be things like you'd go to a specific place to try to pass into the next town and they'd be like, oh, the road is closed right now. Now there's no way you can interact with the closed road. There's no road commission to talk to about it or whatever. You just need to go do something else until that road is fixed. These sort of plot boulders became a common practice in video games and they're not really good practice in RPGs. You want to actively avoid adding plot boulders to your game or otherwise limiting the players in these respects. It's okay to have a direction for the game and have a direction you want the game to go. For instance, in the first module of the Kingmaker Adventure Path, the player characters are mapping out the stolen lands. That's not really negotiable. That's the adventure. If they decide that's not what they want to do, they're not playing Kingmaker. And there's nothing wrong with telling them that. But if you start saying things like, well, you haven't gone to the old Sycamore yet, so you absolutely can't go south and face the Bandit King yet. So that's where you start getting into this railroading. You want the players to feel free to explore and look at things. And a big part of that is not being afraid to let them go in directions you weren't immediately expecting. If you've planned enough beforehand, you should be able to really know your campaign world. If they start going off in a direction, you should be able to have a few NPCs that they can go against. Maybe a random encounter or two that you could pull out. I actually have a deck of random encounter cards that I pull out and go, uh, here, okay, that's an interesting plot thread. Another thing is, if they don't seem to want to go and deal with the head of the Thieves Guild, and they instead want to go down to the docks... Who says that the local pirate king isn't, in fact, just a reskinned version of that Thieves' Guild leader? Here's the thing. In old school RPGs for computers and consoles, there was a practice called palette swapping, where you'd take the same image for a monster enemy, and you'd change the colors on that image, and then model behavior based on those changes. It would still be essentially the same enemy in whatever respect that is. A great example are the turtles in the original Super Mario Brothers game. There's green turtles and red turtles. The red turtles would turn around when they reached the edge of a cliff, whereas the green turtles would walk right off. And this minor behavioral change was a great way of making these seem to be distinct enemies. Similarly, the players don't know that you've got a third level rogue or what that really represents. All they know is that they're facing a pirate who really wants to get behind them and backstab them. Or a rogue who really wants to get behind them and backstab them. Or a member of the Thieves Guild. Or a corrupt town guard. Or 
a particularly vicious monk from an underhanded fighting school. All of these are great ways of reskinning that same enemy into a new encounter that fits the circumstances. The last rule we have for you today is no man is an island. What we mean is don't be afraid to use help from other sources. Many DMs, especially early on, take this heavy burden of creativity all onto their shoulders. And they try to create the whole world and try and be entirely and completely new and unique. And you really don't need to do that. You can get advice from others. One of the most classic examples of this is when the player characters look around and start offering explanations for you to go, yes, that's exactly what it is. If they go, oh my goodness, the geometry of this dungeon is changing. What could be happening? And you look down at your map and realize you've been holding it upside down. You could then offer the option of, oh yes, the geometry is changing. That ogre mage at the end has clear mastery over time and space. And this suddenly makes the player characters believe that you have this great deep enemy already planned from the beginning, when really, they were the ones that offered the suggestion that the dungeon was moving around. There's nothing like listening to your players speculate about your game. One of my mottos is, is that if the player characters guess something that's interesting enough, maybe that is what's going on. You know, and I don't like to use that over much because that can become trite if the player characters' guesses always seem to be a little too on the nose. Always try to instill your own touches on it and make it your own, but listening to your players speculate about what they think is going on in the game can be an amazing source of inspiration. It shows you what it is their thought process is and where they're going with that and gives you the opportunity to reconsider your options. You can undermine their expectations, you can play into their expectations, or you can just ignore everything they're saying and go with what you were planning all along. Just remember that you have the ability to be flexible and learn from these things and you don't have to shoulder the entire burden of creativity yourself. Likewise, even outside of your gaming group, there is a larger gaming community. Every single game has online resources. There are message boards that you can go to to ask other people what they would do in your situation. There are many forums on Reddit. There are many places on Facebook. There are whole Twitter accounts devoted to giving advice to players and DMs who want to know what to do. And this sort of help is really invaluable for a DM, especially if you're struggling. Heck, you're currently listening to a podcast right now where we're explaining how to help you out. You're already halfway there. Just continue on with it. Remember that there are resources out there. Every major game publisher, as well as almost every minor game publisher, has forums devoted to rules, to the modules, to the characters, to the settings. All of that sort of material is available to you, and there are people who have put a lot of thought into this. Don't just discount them because that's not your own creative impulses, because a lot of times we can get so far up our own butts about these things and get this idea in our head that if we didn't come up with it completely ourselves, whole cloth from our own mind, that it doesn't count. And that's just not how the world of creativity works. That's not how we interact with things. When you go to a movie, you're not trying to go to a movie that no one else has ever seen in the history of the world. You want to go to a movie you haven't seen. You want to have a new experience for you. That doesn't necessarily mean that no one's had a similar experience before or that the experience isn't unique or special because other 
people have had this experience. In fact, sharing experiences is a big part of what makes experiences unique, special, and exciting to us. And sharing the burden of creativity and sharing our ability to see these creative visions in our minds is an awesome way of giving us an opportunity to connect not only with ourselves, but our community of gamers at large. So, these have been our five rules. Once again, they are know your venue, prepare your space, personalize your material, don't be afraid to go off the rails, and no man is an island. If you follow these rules, it'll elevate your game from a basic game to an amazing game. So let's see, what what do we have up next? Ooh, so... Up next, we have a new little thing for Save vs. Rant. We're going to be doing a series called Setting Spotlight. In it, we will be going into campaign settings and exploring them and talking about them in depth and in detail. For this one, we're going to talk about Galarian, the setting for the Pathfinder RPG. This is the core setting of this game, and really the flagship of the game itself. A lot of people think of the rules for Pathfinder when they think of Pathfinder, but really the most amazing part to me is Galarian the setting because not only is it this glorious fantasy kitchen sink with tons of different options. It's really settings within settings within settings that all still create this one cohesive whole that can be brought together. And I'm excited to get a chance to finally discuss that. So once again, this has been Save versus Rant. Thank you very much for listening. You cannot teach a man anything. You can only help him find it within himself. Galileo. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at saveversusrant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.